Hello, you've tuned in to the Death Dialogues Project podcast. My name is Becky Odd Jennison, and I'm your host. Why death? Death is the part of our lives we are so very certain about, yet we fear the most. Hiding deep within anxiety, which is a current epidemic, lies the fear of death, ours or a loved one's. But what if I told you that people who embrace death and talk about it openly have a more full-spectrum life experience? We know it isn't your fault. We've been programmed to stuff our conversations and feelings surrounding end of life. By listening to other stories, you get invaluable practice. Our listeners feel more informed about what to do when they find themselves negotiating that inevitable terrain. Most of all, our listeners feel a personal expansion after sitting with someone's tender and fascinating story. That's why we say listening will make you a better human. Promise. Thanks for being here. Welcome to today's episode. Today's episode is one that I've been waiting for for some time. I have followed Olivia Barham's work and it has always just hit the place in my heart that lit up when my family was able to keep my brother and my mother at home with us during their dying time and after their deaths. Her eloquence in speaking about this, I really, really hope that you are able to stay with this episode from the beginning until the end, because Olivia isn't just talking about death. She's talking about life and the way we all need to be looking at it in a full spectrum manner and the gifts that being more literate about death brainness. And Olivia's just gifted with language. She's gifted with presence. I felt like I was in a sacred space talking to her, and I know you will feel this energy as you listen as well. Olivia Barham is a death midwife, an energy healer, interfaith minister, master teacher, and founder of Sacred Crossings, the Institute for Conscious Dying and Alternative Funeral Home in Los Angeles. She was born and raised in England and received her BA in education from the University of London and a bachelor's in natural theology and sacred healing from the Healing Light Seminary in California. Olivia guides individuals toward a conscious dying experience and supports families to reclaim what she terms as the lost art and healing ritual of a home funeral. She has training programs. One is called the Art of Death Midwifery and That encompasses the roles of the death doula, spiritual and end-of-life counselor, a home funeral guide, and celebrant. She has other offerings that you'll hear her talk about that um, we all can take to enrich our relationships with um, our existential wonderings and absolutely would be life-changing for people who have questions surrounding um, death and dying and their own demise and those of others. So I really, really encourage you to not only listen to this episode, but explore Olivia's work. And there will be links on the episode where you can find that. Thank you so much for being here. Hello, Olivia. I am so excited to have you here today. Thank you for being with us. Oh, it's lovely to be here, Becky. Thank you for the invitation. As people will have heard in the introduction, I have followed your work. And every time I see one of your beautiful posts where you're showing examples of your work on Instagram, it just fills my heart so much. And exploring your work deeper did the same. So I really wanted to get you on here for quite a while. And I'm just so happy the stars aligned. It's beautiful. So if you've listened to any of the episodes, basically, we always just start out with you sharing your story. And I know many times when people take a career path like this, or a calling, answer a calling, it has something to do with how death has visited their own lives. So I'd just like to open it up to you, if that's okay, to share with us. Sure, thank you. Well, um, 
what actually kicked me off into the path of death, specifically in, in terms of the healing work. My background is as a hands-on healer. And then I got distracted raising my daughter and getting very involved in the minutiae of schedules and life. And then mum got sick with ovarian cancer. And in her dying, I went back to England to, to be with her. And I got to witness what it is to die consciously, um, very awake, unafraid, ready to go, everything in order. Uh, it was just a pleasure to just to stand beside her and bear witness to such consciousness and fearlessness. Uh, she was my teacher in, in death, as she had been in life. But it, it was after her death that the real um, earthquake, if you will, happened in my world. And that was when the hospice nurse invited me to prepare her body. And it was holding mother's body in my arms as the hospice nurse just gently bathed her, anointed her, laid her down, and we dressed her in her burial trousseau that had been folded carefully in, in the bottom drawer of the dresser for her entire life, 82 mm. years. Mm. Um, it had been given to her when she was christened, along with her christening robe. And she told me where it was two days before she died and said, don't forget to, to iron it, dear. And I, <laughs> it was those sorts of things which were so, um, wow, mom, this is what you want to wear, okay. So then we got it out of the drawer and ironed it and, and put on this beautiful white dress and laid her in the living room. And that's when I began to really have an experience of the quiet, the stillness and the, the something that happens. I call it liminal space. It's that space between the worlds. And I could feel it actually having its way with me physically. It was a somatic experience. Um, and then the people arrived to pay their respects and say goodbye. And I got to sit between my mother laying in repose, if you will, in the living room and her, in her, on her bed with her beautiful rose and her lovely white dress and the, 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 the busyness of life and the table and the teapot and the, the children and the chattering to my right and that and it was glorious to feel the difference life and death were colliding in this space and um i i'd never felt so rich so deep so human so alive um so interested so curious so wow you know i felt like i was sitting in wow and I wanted it to go on and on. I, I knew there was more to be discovered in this liminal, in-between space. But, but as, as it always happens, you know, when the people left and you're left with the body, because we don't know what to do with it, because the funeral industry have, um, have become the experts, and they know how to mm. do this, and we don't, we... We did what everyone else does. We called the funeral home. And that's when my, my opening, this gradual, it felt like a flower was blooming. You know, I was really experiencing what it is to, to receive light. Uh, shut down completely when they came in. And they were very nice people in their black suits and their rickety gurney. They ushered it into the living room and squished her in the bag and zipped it up and it's something that we've all just gotten used to. We consider it normal now. That's what you do, you know. Who knows? Who knew there was something else, right? Um, but I could feel something was wrong. I didn't know what it was. I I just knew it. It didn't. It it suddenly had shut down. This opening, this sacred, this holy space, was now very tinny and and constricted. And ouch. So, you know, we waved the gurney across the lawn and the door shut and there we are left in this space with 
bits of stuff, remains of death, hospice, pill bottles, things like that laying around and everybody had gone and it was an incredibly difficult space to get used to. Um, and that's why I started talking to my sister. I was like, this is not right. Why don't we just keep her at home? We could have kept her here for a few more days, for goodness sake. You know, they did it in the old days. Well, of course, my sister thought I was a little bit odd. She goes, well, that's what they do. You know, that's what you, that's what we have to do now. And I, something within me knew that we didn't have to. We'd, we'd gone along with something and we'd literally thrown the baby out with the bathwater here in in our hurry to get rid of something which somebody was telling us was uncomfortable and not necessary. And I was saying, I didn't mind the uncomfort. It was teaching me something. I want it back, you know. So even though the funeral was lovely and everything was fine and everyone puts themselves back together, as we've learned how to do, I came back to California and I went, I'm going to figure out how to keep that body at home. I want people to have what I didn't have. And I know there's a way to do it. And that's when I found um, a training with, with Jerry Grace Lyons up in Northern California. Um, and I studied with her for a weekend. And I went, I can do that. Came back to LA, put my shingle up. And I went, I'm going to help people keep that space open for a bit longer and sure enough people started calling so I started off as a home funeral guide just opening up the door for three more days after death so that they could get a, a fuller experience of what had just happened and care for their own um, oh my goodness I am so happy that you did that I'm so happy that you were inspired I have to go back <clears throat> to your mother and ask a couple questions that came up for me. So you talk about the planning, the planning that she did. Now, was this always a part of conversation within your lives? Or was this something that she brought up at the end of life? How did you know about this planning? Um, she was very, very um, matter of fact, mother. And she used to say a lot as she, as she in life, well, when I die, and then dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. You will need to do this and you'll need to do that. And you'll miss me when I die. Kind of. <laughs> so she was, she always had this, I don't know, it sort of traveled with her, the when I die piece. So she was always like making sure we, we knew what we were going to do after she died. So I think we'd heard that a lot. And then when it came to it, she put, she stopped doing treatment about uh, four months before she died that they offered her one more treatment. She goes, no, 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 I, I don't want any more of that. She goes, that's, that's not living. I'm, I'm ready to go when my maker wants to take me. She said, so, um, so she cruised after that and she went on hospice and, but she really lived her life. She didn't just fold up and sort of give up. She made sure she got up every day and got dressed and washed and sat in the chair and greeted people and wrote letters and did what she'd always done. But it was, um, as she would say, she was in, she was in her in her carriage in the train, ready to go at any at any time. That mm, was so, my mother said the same thing. Oh, the, waiting for the train. The train. Yeah. 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 And then one day, all of a sudden, she said, "I'm going. I'm going home today. Don't brush my hair." And it was like, "Whoa." Okay. That happened with me as well. Oh my goodness. Yes. Is that's just miraculous, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, today's the day. And it's something that Stephen Jenkinson, um, you probably know Stephen, he's a wonderful, incredible teacher and philosopher. And he says that um if if you have to be told by someone else that you're dying, how firmly planted in your life are you? And I've that I've often thought about that. It's it's Mother was very planted in her life. She mm -hmm. she knew herself. She had her faith. She knew what was what. She so it was no it was no surprise to her that she was dying. So she just embraced it and included it in what was next: having breakfast, going for a walk. I'm I'm going to die soon. I'm going to die mm -hmm. soon. So there was no shock. Nothing that she was. She wasn't resisting anything. Um, I just think it's a perfect example of how living but with acknowledging death as she did 
is just so expansive for your end of life and for your family. I mean, I can just hear how comforted you all seem to have been at the at the end because you knew what she wanted. Yes, there was no guesswork. And she she was teaching us as she was dying. She was she was our our guide. Look, this it, it can be easy. It doesn't need to be a struggle. Just when you mm-hmm. do what you need to do and then when you're ready, just let it go. Um this is just part of what we came here to do. It includes your dying. It was like no nonsense, n- not a big deal. Like I think we tend to make things a much bigger deal than they need to be. Well, it's that <laughs> resistance, isn't it? Yeah. When we're tugging and pulling and resisting death, you know, many many of us are doing that in every waking hour, really, that underlying fear and resistance. Yeah. It, it doesn't let us flow into that space. Of but what it does magic. too is it, it, it <laughs> it's true and it prevents us from actually we're not actually living life we're resisting life no. we're, we're we're skimming on the surface because we don't want to just actually get down under the water and that that water includes the bottom it includes the silt and the slime and the the bits and once you get used to it and stop wanting everything to be nice it's quite delicious <laughs> it's very freeing like. You know, I have a little name. I call it full spectrum living where that, that it's okay to fully engage in all of that, the silt and the coming up for air Mm. (laughs) and the light. And yeah. Well, the other thing about your mother that I just had to make a little note about, please tell me a little bit more. I've never heard of it before about getting your christening gown and your death trousseau at the same time. Oh well, my goodness! I haven't. That either just since. sounds beautiful. <laughs> when when mother first told me about it, and it wasn't, it was quite close to when she was dying. I hadn't heard of it either. And she said, "Oh yes, it was a tradition in our family. The grandmothers always made the christening robe and the burial trousseau from the same piece of fat um, white linen um, because you just wanted it. Because it, it starts and it ends, and the christening robe is like two feet long, and the burial trousseau is six foot long." And it's it's um, it's a blessing that this infant will grow and mature so that they fit the burial trousseau because so many children died in infancy, of course, you know, hundreds oh, yes. of years ago. And yes. my mother was very much into tradition. We had a, our family tree that goes back like four hundred years, and she was very proud of our ancestry. So these these little nuggets were very important to her. And and I think since it's sad that we have lost these traditions um so yeah when her grandmother made these two garments so she was christened in the christening gown and then the burial trousseau was wrapped and it was never to see the light of day until it was needed that was the that was the goal it was very unlucky apparently to look at your burial trousseau before it was time um I thought, oh, I want to bring back that tradition. So when my daughter had a baby, I said, oh, darling, would you mind if I, if I made her a christening gown and her shroud out of the same piece of fabric? And, of course, my daughter had a fit. She goes, no way. <laughs> I don't want you bringing your death around my baby. I was like, oh. <laughs> so, yeah, it's now it's become superstitious to do that and scary because of our our death phobia and and of course our infants don't die so much in infancy and childhood so um perhaps it's not something that you have to wish for the for the baby that they're going to grow to maturity because it's most likely that they will but still i think it's a lovely thing to do is to make your i i I like the idea of making our own shroud and um have classes on shroud making so that you know, we can put our own blessings into our own shroud and then wrap it and place it in the drawer so our loved ones know where to find it. Wouldn't that be nice? Oh, I love that idea too. Yeah. <clears throat> well, thank you for sharing a bit more about that because it definitely held my curiosity. Well, I love that you were able to revisit your mother's um, story for me a little bit with those questions. But I am very curious, as you say, you went with your training and then you started 
painting your shingle. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, well, I started, I called it Sacred Crossings. And um, I did that for a reason, because I, there was something very sacred that is happening there at the deathbed. And for three days beyond the death, I know that this is, that that's the liminal space. It's very sacred. And uh, I, my goal was to reclaim the sacred at the time of death and beyond. So I began as a home funeral guide. And the goal was to you know, just to hold back the authorities and to give the family permission to do whatever they needed for as long as they needed right there in the home so that they could have this liminal, this um, um, somatic experience that I had had and so that it could change them. And, and also, I think, for the one who's died. And yeah. since then, I've realized and read in many different texts that it's not an instantaneous switch over from one state to the other, that it actually takes a period of up to three days for the, the luminous body, the light body, to separate from this physical, um, earthly elements. And if we just, just to give ourselves a, a little more time for that separation to fully occur and for the, the consciousness maybe to adjust to its new form, um, I, I, I feel that it takes takes up to three days. So I think we're, we're doing this home funeral piece for both the deceased and the family, and, and it's equally beneficial to both. So that's how I began. And for the first six or seven years, that's, that's what I did as a home funeral guide. And then I learned that many people hadn't thought about this till the very last minute. And they were calling me in the middle of the night. My husband just died. I want to keep him here for three days. And I'd go, well, wait a minute. There's a lot to understand. There's a lot to learn. And there's a consciousness that you could have been aware of like months before that would have helped perhaps you and your husband begin to prepare for this. And that's what began the conscious dying classes in how to prepare consciously for your own death and how to help guide another into their conscious dying. And, and I was doing that like 12 years ago, I started the training. And it was only five years ago that death doula became the, the popular word. And mm. the death doula movement suddenly you know, bubbled up. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. I've been teaching this for a long time and I hadn't thought to call it death doula because I was already um, referred to as a death midwife because I felt like I was midwifing death in a way in the culture. And mm -hmm. midwifing the family through this um, transition of death and the, the conscious dying piece, the actual midwifing, the one who was transitioning, was a small part, actually, of the, the mid, my, my role as a midwife. So that's why I chose to keep the term death midwife, because it includes the, the death doula, conscious dying, putting your things in order, and the home funeral guide managing the dead body, um, preparing it, sitting vigil with the dead, and then the funeral celebration service, the celebration of life. That's also a big part of midwifery because now you're midwifing. The, with the body present, you're taking this whole group of people, you're moving them through into the next phase of their journey now without the body. So it's, it, it felt like a little bigger than just um, helping the one who's dying through their journey. So that, that's why I kept it death midwifery. And then I started teaching and that led to the art of death midwifery training program. And, and it's become the bulk of the work now is the teaching. Cause I, I realized that through teaching it and, and, you know, passing on my experience and knowledge, Many people can go to their own community and begin this work and transforming not just themselves and their own dying and their immediate family, but their whole community. And yes. that, that way, hopefully, we can finally dislodge this death phobia and move into a more expansive opening mm, acceptance of death. Yeah. Can you can you take us back a little bit and and share as much as you feel comfortable? about the conscious dying aspect of well, your teaching or sharing that you do with people? Well, the conscious dying workshop, which is level two of the training, conscious dying is, is what it is first of all geared towards the individual yourself. Like what, what do I need to do 
to dare to become more conscious of this journey and open to it and allow it and lean into it. So what are the, what are the spiritual practices that I need to become aware of? What are the, the practical things that I need to put in place or that I need to take care of that might be preventing me from accepting, embracing, and receiving my death? Uh, if, if if we have relationships that are that are still unresolved, if, if there's still deep remorse or regret about something that's in the, the that's in our field that we constantly keep going back to, or, or or we kind of are denying in ourselves, that needs to be flushed up and and looked at and and healed. So in in order for us to finally go, you know what, I'm good. I'm really good to go. Not only have I had a very creative, delicious, fulfilled life, but I'm also, I don't have any unfinished business. My relationships are all good. My family, I know I've taken care of my family to to the best of my ability. I've made my will. I've got my directives complete. I've told my family that I want a shroud and I want to be buried or in a green burial cemetery, and I've done it all. So now the only thing left to do is to die. And that just getting to that place allows those last days, weeks, even months, if we're fortunate enough to do this way ahead of time, to be a gentle, beautiful ride when you're in that place of open receptivity rather than closed up, tight, kind of gritting your teeth and wishing it wasn't happening which causes suffering and that increases pain which then demands more medication which increases a level of unconsciousness and perpetuates what we so often see across the board right now that's what death is so i'm trying trying to turn it upside down go listen there's another way to do this what what if death was the most beautiful thing that's ever going to happen to you? What if it's the cherry on the cake? What if it could be orgasmic? What if, what if, what if? Let's, let's, let's go there in our investigation rather than this dread. So I, I can't help but be struck with that process, um, having worked around death at my work, seeing how many times conflict arises among families. And, you know, it it started me saying that I think a lot of times the dying person say it's, well, I'll just speak from a mother's perspective, that maybe that's the time that they think, you know, at least at my deathbed, at least as I'm dying, everyone can come together. And, um, you know, there'll be peace. But so many times that's not able to happen. And with what you're talking about with that preparation work, it's really life work, you know, the whole, um, what do I need to resolve? And what regrets might I have? And understanding that some of that is probably surrounding acceptance, because some things may be unresolvable. But that being conscious, hence your name, Conscious Dying. Um, it's just a beautiful life practice, really, isn't it? Mm. Yes, it is. Yeah, that, that's what I've, that's the big lesson I've got out of all of this um, work with the death, with death and dying is how, how much more aliveness it's brought to my life. Mm. I feel like I've literally woken up through the study of death and dying, which is another um, unexpected and gift in this journey. So I'm sure with your mother and with other people that you've been at their bedside, you've had experiences that may affect the answer to this question. And you can be as detailed or, or we can move on from it if, if you don't want to talk about it. But when you talk about it, the possibility of, you know, the cherry on the cake or orgasmic, what do you see beyond that threshold? What do you imagine, I should say, based on your experiences. It sounds like 
um, you know, something divine. <laughs> I do. I do have a deep sense that death can be like that. It, mm. The ultimate opening. It's like falling into an open flower. Like, what, what if we were like flowers and dying was the bloom, was when the petals finally stretched and opened wide? What, is, what if that is death? And that the bloom of our life is not in our 30s when we look our best and we've, we've just bought our house and blah, we think it's good. But, but what if that is just another little leaf on the flower and death is the bloom? Mm. That's what I, I have a deep sense of is true. And as the petals of the flower, I'm looking at a tulip right now, as they stretch open and they finally go, oh, okay, oh, that's my last little bit of life, then the only thing that can come out of the flower is the scent. And then it releases the essence of what it really was here to do, which was to show us how beautiful it is and for, we, for us to breathe in this, the essence of the flower itself. And I would love to be aware enough to practice this gradual opening, 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 receiving, receiving in my last days and months so that my last breath was like, ah, you know, ah. when I when I even let my body feel what that's like, it it is. It's sort of orgasmic in its mm. release and open. Um, and I think in order to get there, one must have practiced this awareness of that as a possibility and practice noticing when one is resisting, clenched, tight, closed and making a conscious choice to relax and open, relax, open, soften, fall into. So I'm trying to make that my daily practice now. When, whenever I have a visceral reaction to anything, whether something I see on here on the news or something my daughter does or says, you know, we're, and we're triggered all day long. And we have these, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> just making a choice is noticing when it comes up and choosing the opposite, choosing openness. Uh, mm. it, it's becoming more of a, um, a natural, like I think we can re rewire the brain so that mm. it, instead of, so it, it it automatically chooses openness rather than push back, resist, deny, judge, criticize. Uh, what if it was open, accept, love? Wow, that's what I'm. That's my journey now, um, mm. and uh, I'd like to think that if I can continue that, then my journey will be that. And I've seen. The opposite to that, very often on the deathbed, you know, when the physical body is contracted in pain, everything's tight, and we want to get away from, as far away from it as possible. Uh, that is very real. And I, I ask myself that, if your body is in that much pain, this might sound very idealistic, Olivia, but the truth is, intense physical pain causes one to shut down, resist, contract. Um, so what if that's, how can I practice that now? How can I do what I need to do to try to lessen, um, if it's at all possible, that much pain? I don't know. I don't know. I won't know till I get there. Um, so for now, it's it's a practice I'm choosing, the openness, open loving awareness practice. Um, and I'm I with you. Yeah. And I feel like this past year, and here I am on a hill in New Zealand, but I've got a lot of the loves of my life in the United States. Um, and, and we've had our fair share here of unpredictability, but it's certainly with all spectrums of 
life. And you can always say that with what's going on in the world that can be a challenge, that expansiveness and um, aligning with the love always. Um, yeah, it's, it, it, but what a beautiful practice to go back to, to return to, like a home, like the real. That feels like the real to me, mm-hmm. where well, we align with. Yeah, I, I know. I, I thought about it a lot. I went, there's nothing else I want to do. So everything else seems trivial and unimportant compared to that. Mm. Because I know at the end, all that other stuff is it goes away. Yeah, There's only this at the end. So why not practice it now so that, um, yeah. And this, this journey is so short here. It's tiny. I keep, I look at pictures from the Hubble telescope that really helps to see the magnitude of, mm. of existence. And that's so minuscule. And within that minuscule, tiny dot of planet Earth, there's this teeny, tiny nothingness of a life. So I think knowing that, it helps me to, Remind, remind myself to go back to the practice, which is in is being in that open, loving space all the time. You know, if I can't be with my daughter or my granddaughter, can I be that with the the housekeeper and the next door neighbor with their barking dog or something? Mm-hmm. That's where it's really challenging. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's my. <laughs> No, I feel, I feel, yeah, I feel very aligned with what you're saying. Um, I also just wanted to comment what it brought up from my past. Um, my early work with humans was in um, the first place was a nursing home in Texas that was filled with contracted people. It wasn't good care going on, but even in in another subsequent nursing home I worked in, and I've thought a lot about this as my my you know immersion and death has happened, and talking about that openness and expansiveness, and we weren't having conversations, and many of these people had no one to come and visit them, but but I really resonate with what you're talking about that contraction and the grimaces on their faces as if it's building a cement wall to keep death out in hindsight Mm -hmm. that's what it felt like nobody was there whispering open in their ear Mm -hmm. or i'm even i'm here you know um or let go or be i mean just that's yeah there's something about the companioning and and again it gets really back down to the literacy doesn't it of death and life and um well it it really does because that's why i created enter the grave as a foundation course for death doulas death midwives and it really is just all about this is developing the practice now so that let's say you end up being in the nursing home and all your family have died ahead of you and you're the only one there and there is no conscious person coming to your bedside with these encouraging words. But if you know this way in your own being, um, it won't matter because you'll have it in your soul. You'll know, okay, I'm here all alone in this nursing home. I can I can go into how so sorrowful and depressing this is and how sad and I miss my family or I can practice I am falling open laying in this miserable room with no windows and unconscious staff and I can do it anyway so what if that I've I, in my medit my as I practice my death meditation every day I pick a different scenario and rather than trying to finagle a way to make it absolutely 100% that that would never happen to me, (laughs) which is not possible because we never know what's going to happen. What if I was okay with whatever happened, Mm. even if it was that? And I've got work to do in order to get to a place where that would be okay too. Um, there's a quote that I use often in my class. It was Krishnamurti said um, when he was asked, how do you stay so 
peaceful amongst so much turmoil. And he said, um, I don't mind what happens. Mm. I don't mind what happens. And I thought, I want to get to the point where I don't mind what happens. Wow. Because then you're, then you're unaffected. You are. It's like, does the flower that's open to the sunlight, does it mind that it rains? Does it mind that it's a windy day and it's like blown a little bit or a dog came along and peed on it? You know, it doesn't mind because it's just being open. And it's, mm-hmm. that's what I want to get to. I don't mind what happens. Beautiful. Well, I'm getting the sense, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that these courses, and maybe you could highlight what they are, but it it sounds like, um, could it be relevant for individuals to take for their own personal expansion, even if they're not wanting to get into the practice? Or is it... Absolutely. In fact, that's why most people come. And that's why I started it in the first place is to have people prepare for their own death. I started it with just conscious dying. And um, after death care was so that they could learn how to care for their parents or a sibling or a best friend, and they wouldn't have to call a funeral home. That's why I began it in the first place. It was very small. It wasn't as as a business for people or for a profession. And it's just grown from that over the last 17 years now. So, um, and most people who come, they think, you know, I think I might like to do this work. But then when they step onto the path and they realize that studying death and dying is a spiritual journey, a very deeply personal one, um, and that takes many years perhaps before they would then might to consider stepping into it as a role. Mm-hmm. So it actually is. I think most most people take it as a as a spiritual journey, um, and that's a lot of people just take into the grave, which is facing the fear of dying and that what we just discussed, um, and then they don't they don't necessarily, they realize that maybe they don't want to to be a a death doula and spend time at the bedside with people who are dying. Maybe they really want to create a business about or write a book or, you know, move to another country and start a new life. Um, And I I honestly feel that maybe the death doula piece, actually sitting bedside is something for older people in their, as they've, when they've finished their life, maybe people over 50, 55, even over 60 who have the time and space to take 24-hour shifts sitting with somebody who's dying and, and are quite happy to do that. They haven't got a schedule to attend to. They've raised their own children. And being with someone who's dying is is helping them get more comfortable about it for themselves. I'm I'm really genuinely feeling that more and more. And I mean, I know that a lot of young people are stepping into this work, and I think there's a, a lot of need. There's so much to be that could be done. Um, But I think more often the younger people are doing it because they're wanting to help shift this consciousness. They know that intuitively that there's something off about the way we've been doing it. And if they can lean in themselves a little closer, they'll be more able to change, to shift the dialogue and shift the consciousness. That that's my intuitive sense. Um, yeah, I agree with you. And personally, are you seeing in in traditional funeral home practice? Are you seeing in any any shift within those um, where they're trying to open up a bit more to people that want an alternative? Well, I wish that's why Sacred Crossings became a funeral home. Um, mm. I wanted to be able to take them all the way through their journey, all the way to cremation, or burial. Um, I think still they might be a little bit threatened by the home funeral movement mm-hmm. um, because if if everybody did it for themselves, we wouldn't need them. We wouldn't need their, you know, their their big facilities or their chapels or their embalming practices. And what where would they be? Where would they make their money if they didn't make their money on those big important things? Um, so I can see it's 
threatening to them, but I also know that if they were to open to make this shift and change, the other ways of bringing in uh, revenue would would just be made obvious. Um, but it's hard to transition from one state to another, <laughs> as you know, in any anyway. But I think if the, if the first step would be for funeral homes to hire death midwives or death doulas, uh, that that would be the first step for them. Mm-hmm. Then they could see, oh yes, we need this and another person to bridge in, into taking funerals back home. Like, I used to call it. My tagline used to be bringing funerals home. Mm. Just like I birthed my daughter at home, and I think you know the home birth movement, um, which did get big. I thought it would become much bigger than it really is, but and the home death movement or maybe death centers. You know, we have birth centers where people who don't want to have a home birth, but they don't want a hospital birth, they go to a birthing center. So what if people who who couldn't die at home or um, be laid out at home for a home funeral, but they didn't want a funeral home, they could have a death center. And the death center would be where you went to die. And then for the next three days after death, I'd love to create a death center like that. I think you're speaking to what struck me is that a lot, a lot of the people that were seem to be um, uh, moving in this direction are the same type of people and demographic that wanted birth back in the home. I mean, back into traditional or, you know, what I say, traditional now looks different than, you know, historically how we did things. And um, it makes sense to me that those humans who were heralding let us take our births back um, would be doing the same with death. And it also makes sense to me, just like with birth, that some people cannot go down that fork in the road and some people will not be able to with death. But the fact that we have choice is what's important. And I wanted to share with you, I was hoping this was becoming more of a trend. We just really had a fortunate situation with my brother in Michigan when I contacted the funeral home that my sister-in-law would be using because I asked the social worker with hospice who they thought would be most um, cooperative with doing things a bit differently. And he said to me, we've never done this before. We've never not embalmed someone and left them home with the family. And we kept him home for three days. But I am willing to do this with you because I know it's a coming trend. And coached me on where to place the ice and things in that nature. Was so supportive and said, I want you to know you can call day or night. And we will be there within a half an hour to pick him up. You don't have to tell me now when. So it was just this beautiful, I'm just so used to with institutions, working with medical institutions, et cetera, just always banging heads, you know, when you want to do something alternative. So I'm hoping that that literacy expands, especially with um, work like you're doing in the world and the wave that you're saying that we're seeing even with the younger generations where more and more they'll take on hiring? Well, I think the funeral homes um, are starting to say yes because they they need as many families and, and bodies as they can get in order to cover their expenses, you know. So once they realize that a family is inquiring and if they say no to them, that family is just going to call the next funeral home right. and they're going to wait until they find one that does honor their wishes and give them what they want and in a place like Los Angeles, where there are so many to choose from, it 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 makes it possible to do that, and it also makes the funeral home that used to be very um, controlling in its way have to relax a little, so that they're more likely to say, "Oh, okay, well, we'll do whatever you want then, because we want we don't want you to go to somebody else." Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a good thing, and, yeah. and they're learning yeah. that it's easier for them because the family can do this; the family can take. They've they've got this, and it should be theirs, and it's their experience, and just let them have it. And they need to know that that's possible. That's just what I hear when, with a project, when 
we put out a conversation such as this, or I'll share your posts um, sometimes that you have beautifully shown the actual practice because I want people to see probably much the same reason you're sharing themselves yourself. You know, you want people to see the beauty in it. You want people to see alternatives. I want people to see alternatives out there. And, you know, people don't know that there are alternatives, the vast population. And so we need to keep these conversations alive. So um, and and again, some people are going to say, absolutely not. I could never do that. But there's so many people that are like, oh, my goodness, I had no idea that was possible. Mm, that's true. I know people who come to a home funeral, they, they step over that door with this a lot of trepidation. Like, are you kidding me? You've got a body in here. It's been here for two days already. I don't mm. think that's legal. And ooh, isn't that weird? And then, you know, the family going, well, you can come in if you like and come see and they go, no, I think I'll just deliver this casserole or whatever. I just wanted to pay my respects. But they are so curious, they they can't help themselves. Nobody can because it's it's not something anyone's ever seen. So who, who would not want to go? Especially when little kids are running in and out and saying, come and see Grandpa, he's dead. And the next-door neighbor is going, uh, this is weird, okay. And they follow the little seven-year-old who's – and they – once they step into the room and they see this incredibly beautiful regal, it's it's holy space. They they're just in awe. They go, "Oh my goodness! I had no idea. He looks amazing every single time." And you see, we don't know what we don't know, and it's easier to stay protected and guarded. And you know, I don't think I want to go there. That sounds so weird. Than it is to say, you know what, I think I'll, I think I'll just investigate. I'll, I'll open a doorway in my, in, in my being. And so the little kids who lead them are, are, are our teachers in a way for a lot of people. Exactly. Well, this has just been a beautiful, beautiful conversation. I'm, I'm wanting you to share with our listeners, like, what is the focus of your time and work right now? Um, well, right now it's, um, it's in fine tuning the training, the art of death midwifery, which is three levels. It's, uh, enter the grave is the first class, which is that spiritual opening, becoming more familiar with, uh, your own fears, addressing them, seeing where they come from, expanding into the space. Then, um, Level two is conscious dying, and that's the death doula training. That's everything you need to know to help somebody in their journey, in their own death journey, how to create a legacy project, to put their things in order, um, to make plans, to heal relationships. Uh, it's also a little about the, what a death doula needs to be in their own presence in order to sit bedside and to hold this family. Um, it's a big piece and so there's a certificate just for that workshop because some people they just want to learn how to be present and help their family member in their dying process or they're curious about it for themselves they want to be able to go into a nursing home and, and say that they're a death doula and they know how to help this person die so that's just that one workshop um, but I say if you want to do the more expansive training, it's good to take all three workshops because level three is after the last breath. And that's everything you need to know after they've taken their last breath from you know spiritual practices, rites and rituals, closing the chakras, anointing, prayers at the deathbed, um, closing the eyes and the mouth and laying the body out, bathing, dressing, anointing, shrouding, holding space for those that three-day vigil. Uh, we, we talk about what's happening to the light body or the consciousness, the awareness of the person who died, and also the family. What's going on for them? How, how can we help them transition from having their loved one in their life and their family and so much a part of their world because they're they're round the clock 
caring for that person and now suddenly that's all stopped and how do we help the family get, transition from that state to who am I now so that's level three uh, that is the art of death midwifery and then I've added which I've been doing for a long time actually it's the funeral celebrant training that's how to create a celebration of life now you've been with this family for probably up to four or five months You've journeyed with them through this process. You've helped them do this glorious home funeral. And now we're going to end it with a celebration when we place them in the casket, put the lid on, and then take them to the cemetery or the crematory. How do we encapsulate somebody's life into something that's such a celebration? And this goes for an infant that's been brought home from the hospital because it, it only lived three days. And now the, the baby's been home with the mom and now how do we celebrate this? How, how do we find words to, um, to, to, to create a ritual, a service, a ceremony that um, encapsulates this, this being's life and, and importance within this family? So that's um, the funeral celebrant. And I'm, I'm actually currently working on the next workshop, which is um, And Then What?, Mm. Which is the moving moving forward for both the one who's died and the ones who were left behind, and and then what? Mm. So um, I'm looking at trying to put them online because so many people are calling from other countries even that can't come to Los Angeles. I love doing them in person. I mean, I, I, I my dear friend lets me use her home. So we have you know 25 people in the home sitting on the floor. We use the gardens and the pool, and it's rich and yummy and lots of sharing. But uh, since COVID, it's all gone onto the Zoom format, and miraculously, it really does work. Mm-hmm. And many students have said they love it even more because now they're in their own home. They don't have to get in the car. They can process the information more deeply. Um, so who knows, that was a lovely bonus. Um, so I'm looking at just fine-tuning and tweaking those. I'm also trying to find time to write my book, which I've been working on for many, many years. And, of course, I meanwhile, I run the funeral home. So I have students who have taken the training in person here in Los Angeles. Uh, we have a team now so that when we get called for somebody who wants a death midwife, whether that's to act as the death, the, the death doula piece and just guide their mom through the journey because moms may be experiencing a lot of um, stress and anxiety and there's lots of things she hasn't done yet, so we'll send somebody who wants to be the death doula to that home. And then when they die, they want a home funeral, so then we have other guides who just do the home funeral piece and then also... Uh, death midwives who are who are focused on the funeral celebrant piece and they go into the home to do the ceremony Um, so it's a lot it's uh, I'm doing less on the ground now in the field because I I really do love the teaching and I feel like I can teach and counsel on the phone and then uh, help more people take it to their community rather than just the work in the field although I love it. So. Well, that makes perfect sense. And I'm so thrilled that you're, you're out there and you've created this beauty of work and, and sharing it and, and allowing that wave that's building to continue in this beautiful way. Thank you so much for coming and joining us for this conversation today. I'm I'm really going to have to sit for a little while and just soak all of it in. I think, um, yeah, our listeners are going to want to save this one and come back to it. Oh, thank you. So many jewels. Mm. Thank you so much. Yeah, it is. It's it's just a remarkable journey. (laughs) I'm just, I just feel so blessed. Every single person who dies in my field enriches me. Uh, mm. so many ways that um that's the gift in this work you're 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 more than you thought you were by doing it in fact i want to read you this quote Liz. i love this quote by herman brock he says 
No one's death comes to pass without making some impression. And those close to the deceased inherit part of the liberated soul and become richer in their humanness. I think that's why I keep going, is mm-hmm. that I've become richer, broader, deeper, because of all these people who have died and I've incorporated them in my being. Mm. And that's what I love about this conversation is how much it has interwoven the living and with the dying. And that's what it's all about, really. Mm. And and I love his quote. I love that. Mm. Resonates. Well, Olivia, thank you so kindly for being here. Appreciate it so much. Welcome. Thank you for Becky for doing this and having these incredible conversations. I know I'm going to Every time I go for a walk now, I'm going to listen to another one. (laughs) You just can't get enough of it when you, (laughs) it's just who I am, I guess. Thank you. All right. You take good care. Thank you, dear. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. We hope you've enjoyed your time with us today. We'd love for you to get further connected with our project. You can find the links in the podcast information. You can also find the Death Dialogues Project on Facebook, on Instagram, and at www.deathdialogues.net. Take good care and see you next time.